Amen. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, we made our way through graduation season. We're done exchanging all the well wishes with those who have graduated from high school and from college. And if you're a graduate here, my guess is over those weeks, you read Jeremiah 29, 11 a whole bunch of times, right? Because Jeremiah 29, 11 is the verse that we put on the front of, of those graduation cards, wishing everybody well, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Right? Beautiful, assuring, happy words of future promise, right? I think a lot of us would be surprised to learn the context of that verse. Right? These words are given in the middle of the book of Jeremiah. You probably know that because it says Jeremiah behind it, right? But any of you who over these weeks have even begun to start reading through the book of Jeremiah, you are clearly aware that the book of Jeremiah is far from beautiful and assuring and happy like this verse is. Let's remember just for a moment, remind ourselves of where we are in in the book of Jeremiah, what Jeremiah is all about. Jeremiah is a prophet of doom. Right? He's called to be a prophet of doom, speaking God's coming judgment to the country of Judah that has chosen idolatry, that has chosen to walk away from God, to turn their backs on God. And so they've reneged on their covenant agreement with God. Remember, they made the agreement, I'll be your God, you be my people, you obey and follow me and I'll bless you. They have walked away from that covenant. So God is no longer bound by his covenant promises either. And so through Jeremiah, God is telling the nation of Judah that, that their discipline is coming, right? King Nebuchadnezzar with the kingdom of Babylon to the north is the world power who's going to provide the discipline to God's people. They've already had two defeats. They've already had two deportations of, of captives to Babylon. Remember, Daniel led the first deportation and, and then Ezekiel led the second. And so there's already so many of them living in Babylon in captivity. But the third and final defeat, Jeremiah is telling them, is about to come. The final deportation is going to happen. 587, that's the year it happens, right? Their most painful moment on their doorsteps. Jerusalem will be defeated. The whole city will go up in flames after a two-year siege that leaves them really, most of the citizens, as breathing skeletons. There's hardly anything left again. And Jeremiah warns them throughout his book. He pleads with them, don't rebel. Don't fight against Nebuchadnezzar. Just surrender. You surrender and you live. That's God's grace to you. He's given you an out. But if you choose to fight, you die. Not a happy message. Not a happy book. And it's into this setting that you get Jeremiah 29. In fact, take out your Bibles if you haven't already. We're going to be reading sections of that chapter. Page 641. 641 in the Bible is in front of you. Jeremiah 29, 11 was not a promise given at a moment when the future looked bright and rosy and happy, like a graduation party or, the, or a wedding or the birth of a child. It was given to the people of Judah who had already lost 
everything. Because Jeremiah 29 was not a message from Jeremiah to the people living in Jerusalem. It was a message from Jeremiah, from God through Jeremiah, to the people who are already in Babylon. It was a message to Daniel and to Ezekiel and to their countrymen who are already living in exile as captives in Babylon. It's written to a people who are in the middle of their own 587s of life, in the middle of their struggle and pain and hurt. And in order to, to understand this message, you need to glance back to chapter 28 for just a moment to understand chapter 29. See, in chapter 28, one of the false prophets that is still living in Jerusalem, right? Jeremiah is a true prophet. There's all kinds of other prophets who are, who are saying they're speaking for the Lord, okay? And one of these false prophets in Jerusalem makes a bold declaration in God's name. Look at verses 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 28. You get to hear what Hananiah declares. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon, Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now there's a wonderful promise, right? The promise that Jerusalem and Judah will be restored within two years. All the captives will be coming home again. God is going to come quickly to rescue his people. It's exactly what the people of Judah wanted to hear, right? The only problem is, it's not true. Hananiah isn't speaking for God here. And so Jeremiah does. Jeremiah replies to him in verse 14. These are Jeremiah's words. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will put an iron yoke on the necks of all these nations to make them serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. I will even give him control over the wild animals. In other words, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar aren't going anywhere anytime soon. In fact, if anything, he's going to get more power. He's going to get more strength. So don't believe that Nebuchadnezzar is going to fall. Don't believe that within two years, you're suddenly going to be free. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be stronger than ever. So, so what should the captives in Babylon believe? They're receiving both of these messages, right? What should they do? Are they about to return home? Are, are, are they about to pack up their stuff and come back to where they long to be? Or not? How in the world are they supposed to live as God's people stuck in the middle of this enemy culture that they're stuck in? Well, it's to these captives trapped in Babylon that Jeremiah sends the message from God in chapter 29. Listen to what he says to him. Verses 4 through 14 are what we're going to read this morning. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry 
and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now, did you, did you catch the message that he gives to them in verse 10? He says to them, it's not going to be two years. Okay, these prophets are telling you two years. That's not true. It's going to be 70 years. 70 years before you get to come back home again. God is not going to come and quickly rescue them. They are going to be exiles waiting for restoration from their brokenness, living in captivity, living in a foreign land where they don't belong for 70 more years. God's people waiting in the brokenness for a coming redemption. That should sound rather familiar to us. Not just in our heads, but in our lives and in our hearts too. Because that is your story and my story. That's our story. God's people waiting in brokenness for coming redemption. As citizens of the kingdom of God above all else, which we are, at least we proclaim to be, right? We look forward to a perfect future through Jesus Christ, where God will make all things right again, right? Where perfect justice will rule. Where there won't be tears to cry anymore. And there won't be sorrow. And there won't be pain. And we don't have to live with this brokenness in our lives. But in the meantime, that's exactly what we experience, isn't it? You and I are very familiar with tears and sorrow and pain and suffering. Each one of us here could name it in our own lives. You can identify it. So how, we ask, along with the exiles in Babylon, how do we live as God's people exiled into this broken place? What does it mean for you and I to walk through the painful times of our lives, to walk through our own 587s, right? How do we live? Well, Jeremiah tells us. He tells them and he tells us. And he says, first of all, it means, 
It means that we bring God into the, into the very presence of our circumstances that we're wrestling with. We bring God right into our hurts and our brokenness and our struggles and our tears and our sorrows and our sadness and our anger. Right? Oftentimes, like the people of Israel in Babylon, our first reaction when we find ourselves in the middle of the pain and the brokenness of life, our first reaction is, is to beg God to rescue us. To beg God to, to somehow make it right and get us out of this mess, right? Get us out as soon as possible. And sometimes that's exactly what God does. But more often, instead of, instead of plucking us out of the brokenness of this world, Instead of letting us out of those circumstances, we're called to bring God into those circumstances. That's what Jeremiah says to these exiles in Babylon. The people of Judah are, are foreigners. They're captives in this foreign land. They're God's people being ruled by an ungodly king. They are God's holy people living in the midst of an unholy culture. And their natural expectation would be to want to get out. I want to get out of here. Uh, their natural reaction would be to separate themselves from the culture around them, right? But Jeremiah commands them instead. He says, get engaged with that culture. He tells them, go ahead and build houses. Plant gardens. Raise your family there. In other words, he tells them, get fully engaged in this community in which God has placed you. Bring God into your present circumstances. Bring God even into Babylon. And we, if anybody, shouldn't be that shocked by that command. Because that's a completely reformed concept, isn't it? If we are truly reformed Christians, and that's more than just a big long name, big long word in our church's name, then our reaction should be, of course, of course we bring God into the circumstances of our lives and of our world. That's what it means to be reformed. We don't ask God to take us out of this broken world. We bring him into it. I mean, think about, think about your own 587. I asked you to have it come to mind earlier. Your own sorrow, the own struggle that you're wrestling with in life. What would it mean for you to bring God into that painful part of your life? Instead of just hoping he'll take you away from it. What would it mean to bring God into the difficulty of your marriage? Into the difficulty of your family? Into the difficulty of that friendship that's causing you pain? What would it mean to bring God into your journey through disease? Into your journey through disability? Into your sorrow following death? What would it mean to bring God into your depression? To bring God into your anxiety? To bring God into your worry? What would that mean? What would that look like? Jeremiah, in verses 8 and 9, he warns the exiles there in Babylon not to choose escapism. It's so tempting, right? The false prophets at that time were telling them, don't get involved in Babylon. Stay away. 
Your time is going to be short, so just stay away from them all. Just, just wait. Twiddle your thumbs and wait for God to work. Don't be a part of what's going on all around you. Just do nothing. Wait for God to come. And, and that attitude of escapism is still such a temptation today for you and me. Right? We've got the coming kingdom of God in our sights. Yes, someday God is going to come and make all these wrongs right again. Uh, no more tears, no more sorrow, more, no more pain. I just need to hold on. I, if I just hold on, God will come and fix everything. So it's easier than just not to have to deal with the difficult situations. Just, just hold on, right? Don't face them. It's easier to believe that this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, so I'll just wait for this pass through to get to that end. It's easier just to endure my situation here on earth and wait for heaven. But God's message is exactly the opposite of that. He commands his people to actively bring God and his kingdom right into our exile, to work for the kingdom of God wherever God has placed us, to be agents of shalom in these difficult places of life. Right, that word shalom, it's a, it's a beautiful and distinctly biblical word. It conveys, conveys a sense of, of contentment and wholeness. That comes when everything is the way it's supposed to be. And that Hebrew word shalom shows up again and again in verse 7 here. If you were to read it in the Hebrew, you'd see it show up three times in one verse. When a word shows up that often, you've got to pay attention to why it's there, right? And, and the word shalom showing up in verse 7 would have stunned. Would have stunned the original readers. Th those captives in Babylon. They wouldn't have believed this verse. Because verse 7 calls him, says to work for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. To work for the shalom of Babylon. Because if it prospers, if it experiences shalom, then you too will prosper. You too will experience shalom. This was an unprecedented message in ancient culture. That you would even think about working towards the prosperity of the city where you are a captive. That you'd pray for the welfare of, of, of your captors. Of this enemy who's holding you against your will. Shalom, that completeness, that contentment, that wholeness when all is right. Shalom is what they were longing for and they expected that they would only experience it apart from Babylon, apart from the struggles of their lives. And God tells them just the opposite. He says, you will experience shalom right in the middle of Babylon, right in the middle of these struggles. What a message for us. We can experience shalom, not just when finally the struggles of this world are gone. You and I can experience shalom right in the middle of our own brokenness. Even in the middle of our 587, whatever that is for you. God brings his shalom into our lives wherever we are. It's not exactly what the Apostle Paul calls us to in Romans 8, 28. 
Paul tells us that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, right? Paul here isn't saying that all things are good. He doesn't say all things are good because that's just not true. The life situation you may find yourself in right now may be far from good. But, he says, God has the transforming power to use it for good if we will choose to bring him into our present circumstances. If we bring him in, he will will bring opportunities to make an impact on others. If we will bring him in, he will bring opportunities for us to learn and grow. If we will bring him in, he might bring opportunities for us to love and be loved, to build community together. If we will bring him in, He will bring his shalom if we bring him into our present circumstances. That's exactly the life that Daniel lived in Babylon. He's a perfect example of this. He lived out what Jeremiah commanded. Daniel was one of the ones who received this letter, living in exile in Babylon. And he engaged himself in the daily life and workings of Babylon. He worked for the peace and prosperity, the shalom of this country that ripped him away from his home. And God used him for good. God raised him up to be second in command behind Nebuchadnezzar, used Daniel to turn, ultimately turn Nebuchadnezzar's heart towards God. Daniel chooses to bring God into his present circumstance. It's a choice we're invited to make too. To let God work his kingdom transformation power in us, through us, wherever we find ourselves in life. We bring God in to our present circumstances. And secondly, living in faithfulness means that we trust God for our future circumstances. God, so we bring him into our present circumstances, we trust him for our future circumstances. Because God doesn't leave the people he loves without a promise for the future, does he? He In fact, multiple promises. In verse 10, he promises that he has not forgotten them and that someday they will be free again. In verse 11, that promise we come to love so much, he promises that he has a wonderful plan for them, a plan for hope and future. In verses 12 through 14, He promises that in the end, the full kingdom of God will come again. Their faithfulness to God and his kingdom will be rewarded with victory. His promise is that this brokenness will not last forever. But he's also up front with them. He's very honest with them. So he promises this won't last forever, but he does say it will take a long, long time. They're going to be there for 70 years. Think about that for a moment. 70 years. That means most of the people who hear this message won't live to experience the freedom that's being promised. Most of them are going to die in captivity. They're going to die in Babylon. But he gives them hope for the future. And and with that gift of hope, God gives them the freedom not to choose despair, 
Right? And, and we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story. You can read the end. God is faithful to his promises. And when 70 years are up, God proves himself to be faithful. He brings his people home again. But honestly, sometimes it's really easy for us, at least for me, to be swallowed up by the despair of the brokenness in our lives. To drown in self-pity when the troubles of life come our way, right? It's tempting just to give up hope. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's ever going to get better. That's not the promise God gives us. He gives us a promise we can hold on to. He gives us a hope and a future and a firm assurance. Our hope is in his promise and in his plan that is still being worked out in our lives and in our world. Yes, when we're in the middle of our own 587s, Satan looks like he's, he's invincible. And yes, it may seem like God has lost his power and God has lost his voice. And yes, it may seem like God's plans have been completely derailed. But seeing is not believing. That's not living in faith, is it? Our faith holds on to the words of God that say to us in the middle of our darkest times, in the middle of our brokenness and our captivity in this world, that say to us, I know the plans I have for you. I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I have plans to give you a hope and a future. This won't be forever. Now, I can't stand here and promise you that you will see the restoration of all your earthly circumstances, of all the brokenness, that you'll see it all tied up in a nice bow. I don't subscribe to the health and wealth gospel that, that promises that if you're just faithful enough, God will take away all your problems and God will make your life easy and good. It's not what God's promising here. Remember, most of these exiles never saw Jerusalem again. They never experienced earthly freedom again. So I can't promise you that if you live faithful in the middle of the brokenness of this world, that you're guaranteed health and you're guaranteed wealth and you'll, God will restore your family and you'll have the absence of sorrow and pain. That's what God desires, but it isn't what he promises. He promises us an even greater hope in the future which we get just a taste of here in this life. He promises us shalom. The shalom that comes through his son, Jesus Christ, through the new heaven and the new earth, where there will be no more tears or crying or pain or death or sorrow, and all the wrongs that we're wrestling with right now will be made right again. That's God's perfect promise to you and to me that gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And that's the promise that gives us the power to hold on to hope instead of sink into despair. That's the promise that gives us the will and the purpose to press on when otherwise we just give up. We get to begin ushering in God's kingdom shalom right here, right now, in our world and in the brokenness of our lives. 
That's what God does when we bring him into these present circumstances, right? He brings his shalom to us into this world. He brings his transforming power. And he works out his plan step by step in us and through us. So, so I don't know all of your, your specific life circumstance right now. I know some of your stories. And I know some of you sit here today and you feel like you've got this world by the tail. Right? Your present is solid. Your future looks bright. You feel secure. And it's to you who have this world by its tail that God gives the promise of Jeremiah 29 11. Because you need to go into that future remembering God's plans for you. Remembering who gave you that prosperity. Who gives you that hope. Who gives you that future. A future that really matters. Don't lose sight of God's kingdom future. In the middle of your peace-filled reality. I also know that others of you here feel like the world has you by the tail and that you've lost all control and you're on the verge of maybe even losing all hope. The disappointment, the sorrow in life seem overwhelming. The worries, the fears, inescapable. Your present is shaky and your future looks bleak. And it's to you that God gives the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11. Into your captivity, God gives you those words of comfort and assurance. Those words that give you confidence. That God's plans are still being worked out. God still has the power. Your future is still in his hands. And you still have reason to hold on to hope. And that reason has a name, and that name is Jesus. Because when we bring Jesus and his power, when we bring the Holy Spirit and his power into our present circumstances, whatever they might be, then we learn how to walk in faith and to trust him for our future. Then we can live in the good times and the bad times with God's promise for all times ringing in our ears, ringing in our heart that this won't last forever because I've already won the victory. And that in that victory, I've got plans for you, plans to give you a hope and a future, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. That's what we hold to as we live in this broken world. Would you pray with me, please? Father, to some of us here, the brokenness of our lives is so real, it's so overwhelming that what we just heard sounded like hollow words, empty words. We can't comprehend. They don't make sense to us. Father, to those of us who are struggling in the captivity of this world broken by sin, send your spirit to help us hear these words as you intended them to be heard. To hear these words as words of grace, 
and mercy. To hear these words as words that will give us not everything we ask for, not the escape that we so long for, but words that will give us strength for each day and words that will give us bright hope for tomorrow. Words that will bring us closer to experiencing shalom, a contentment, a peace that doesn't depend on our circumstances, but that only depends on you. Father, I realize that in the midst of the brokenness and the pain that is real in our lives, your message that you give to us today through Jeremiah will be hard to apply. But I pray that you would help each one of us step by step, moment by moment, little by little, to put our trust in you, to bring you into our brokenness, and to trust you for our future. And may we do that together as a community so that none of us watch this journey alone. Father, thank you that even in the midst of the brokenness of this world, with confidence we can say that you are good. You are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.